Hello, good morning, good afternoon. It's Friday the 31st of August here in Sydney, Australia. It might still be Thursday where you are if you are listening in the US. There are not many countries that are ahead of us, are there, James? No, no, we're New Zealand, but that's about it, so right up the front. We're right up the front, living in the future. My name is Kevin Garber, with me is James Peter. You're listening to episode number three of the It's a Monkey podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the feedback. We will be playing a call that we received, our first call into our comment line, and uh, we'll be answering some of your questions. Just to let you know what's up in the show today, we'll be talking to Professor Jay Ritter, who is a professor of finance at Florida University, and we'll be talking to him about IPOs and Facebook and Facebook share price and all that chunky, um, nice sort of end of the market where all of this is really about is ultimately we need to make profits um, in one form or another. And um, we'll, as I said, we'll be taking um, the caller's um, call. He has He's had a couple of interesting questions, but to kick it off, we're going to be talking about some of the news, um, the tech news for this week. I think we need a bit of a news jingle, James. <laughs> next week, next week we'll uh, we'll be having our uh, maybe a monkey monkey themed news intro. A monkey themed news intro. Yes, I, th- I think that's a good idea. So let's get right into it. Some of the news stories. Twitter, Twitter's always in the news. Um, this week they made quite a significant change to the way tweets are displayed, particularly significant if you have been using Twitter for a long time. Um, James, talk us through what's going on on that side of things. Uh, well, they've, they've removed the via uh, attribution uh, icon from their uh, web app. Um, and so this is a, that was actually the final remaining uh, indication that third parties were, you know, kind of contributing to Twitter, to the mainstream. Uh, they'd, they'd removed it from all the the other apps they have, so like the iOS app um, and their, their Chrome web app, they'd, they'd removed all of the indications that, um, you know, people were posting via third parties. But uh, yeah, now it's now it's off the, the website as well. So there's no attribution for third party developers. So just to clarify, particularly if maybe you're a newer Twitter user, in the old days when you used Twitter, it was quite prominent how you were posting onto Twitter. So it would say posted via the web or posted via, um, you know, one of the other apps, Echo Phone or TweetDeck. And in the early days, that was quite prominent. And that was quite significant in actually spreading word about the different Twitter clients. Um, a little while ago, I'm not sure how long ago exactly it was, they, they buried it. You had to click on the details on a tweet and you could still see whether the tweet came from the web client, the Android client, TweetDeck, and you could still see how people were posting to Twitter. And now they've entirely removed it. I'm a bit disappointed to see it go. I used to, obviously, we in the industry, we, we uh, have, a, have much more of an interest but it still was, um, I'm so used to actually working out how people tweet that um, it's, it's going to be a little bit uh, unusual not to be able to dig down to see what they're doing, how they're tweeting. Yeah, it definitely is disappointing. I mean, obviously for us, obviously for us, because we do, um, you know, post stuff into the stream through Manage Flutter. I mean, for us, we, we are losing the attribution, but, but moreover, just as, as a user, I mean, it was always interesting to, you know, look at celebrities or look at, you know, the high volume users and 
you know, use that attribution as a way to find out how they were using Twitter and, and discover new tools. So, you know, it's, it is disappointing from that point of view. Um, you know, for now, that data still is accessible through the API. Um, in fact, I think it's one of the few things that's accessible through the API that Twitter doesn't have on their website. Um, but, uh, you know, that may that may dis- disappear in the future. It's certainly not in display, display guidelines for tweets. So um, it may be a case that developers can't actually publish that information. So it could be gone for good. I, I agree with you. I, I found it interesting to look at um, high-profile people and people using Twitter well to see was this actually a manual tweet through mm, the web yeah. interface? Was it a scheduled tweet? Was it a link from a feed on their blog? And I would sort of reverse engineer and see what they're doing. And unfortunately, mm. now we won't be able to um, do that anymore. But anyway, Twitter Twitter have their own aims, as we've spoken about many times, and um, things, things are changing there. Um, Interesting to see that Stanford University, which many consider as Silicon Valley ground zero, actually um, engaged, well, they appointed someone with the sole position of looking at the role of online education at Stanford University. This is, this I think makes a lot of sense. I've often felt that universities almost have become redundant in this day and age. And it's quite interesting to see that Stanford have taken the step. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's an opportunity for me to, to, to spill my uh, universities are useless uh, speech, but uh, <laughs> okay, they're not they're not useless. But uh, you know, I definitely see a future where you know they're they're going to become, I guess, like the uh, like the film industry has become, you know, undercut by uh, by digital technology. You know, does it does it make sense to to you know pay hundreds of thousands of dollars over three years for your for your tertiary education, or does it make a lot more sense to pay like 10 bucks a month and have a whole bunch of online courses, you know, what's, what's going to be better for students and, and, um, and their careers, you know, that's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's definitely still well on the university court for now because employers don't, you know, if, if you go to an employer to say, Hey, I did a 10 week course online and they're they're not going to recognize as much as if you'd been to a prestigious university. But, um, yeah, I mean, I see that changing. I see that, uh, I see that disappearing if, you know, the value is going to go, uh, where the quality is and and you know it just makes sense that you can you can you know one good teacher can serve a lot more students online than they can in a traditional university campus so we'll see that in the future was it mit that are offering um an online course to everyone yeah. and they and they publish uh, they they give you a certificate once you completed your hours or something like that yeah i think it's the artificial intelligence right. course they were doing that, sounds that, familiar. That, that was a pretty big hit actually i think they it actually overwhelmed them just how much response they got um off that course um so yeah i mean the demands there from 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 users for sure i think it's a really exciting area i mean i was at university in a, in a bit of a crossover period for when I first started, the internet, you know, wasn't really around. And by the time I ended, it, it, it had already made its impact. And when I first started, the universities had, had a monopoly on libraries, on resources, and, and there really was no option. But in today's time, in terms of, in terms of content availability for certain areas, it's almost quite 
inefficient to sit, particularly, I think the challenge for universities is they now have a challenge to add real value in a way they, they were protected and, and, and the barrier to create value just by virtue of the fact they had some, some libraries and some lecturers was enough. Now they really have to provide a, a much more holistic, deeper and wider experience for it to make it worth your while. Otherwise, sitting at home and watching YouTube videos and listening to podcasts uh, might actually be a better use of your time. I guess the other thing is, is if you do it online, you can do it, uh, you know, in conjunction with whatever, whatever else you're doing in life. You know, you don't have to, uh, you know, be it at a certain place at a certain time. You know, you can make your education suit your suit your lifestyle, and you know that's that's obviously quite a departure. So, um, yeah, that's, that's not to say universities are useless. There's obviously a lot of uh, a lot of uh, fun to be had there, um, and obviously on the cultural side, you know, it definitely helps to. You know, I guess um, take people out of the school environment into sort of the more of a, you know, the the professional type workplace and understand that kind of dynamics. There's lots of ex- uh, ancillary stuff there, but um, in terms of the pure uh, learning potential, um, I think they're on shaky ground. I think so, particularly the bottom end of the universities. I think the top end, in terms of as you as you said, learning all the all the indirect things. You know, I know some universities force force you to become fluent in a second language. They force mm-hmm. you to get involved in a significant not for profit project. Um, they force you to live on campus so you can learn to, how to live with people, etc. Those certainly make sense. But in terms of of, of just a data dump, um, those days are well and truly over. Um, Google Plus. Google Plus, always something happening with Google Plus as well. So there are rumblings that things are, the momentum is slowly picking up. And and this week, vanity URLs, they made vanity URLs available to, I think, is it companies and, and certain high-profile people? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure. Actually, I haven't read too much about it. I, I'm I, I, I try to see if I could access a vanity URL for myself, and I couldn't. Yeah, so not high-profile enough. <laughs> so not high-profile enough. Um, yeah, I, I've got an idea. I th- uh, no, no, that was Twitter. That was the Twitter's the one that sort of reaches out to you for verified accounts. Um, yeah, there obviously is some sort of uh, metric required for the vanity URLs, but uh, I guess they've I guess they li- listened to the user feedback. I mean, it was definitely something at the start. Nobody wants a big long string of numbers to pass around to their friends. You know, they want a nice clean URL that's got their name in it. So. Uh, yeah, the Google's uh, engineering culture comes through every now and then, and I think that, that was certainly one where, um, you know, launching with with user IDs a, a bit ridiculous, really. It is. It is very odd. I mean, it's you know, in this day and age, you know, you know, a single developer probably wouldn't even think of you know launching with that kind of URL structure because you know, in many respects, it's just very easy to implement something that's got vanity URLs in there. But uh, I guess just case of priorities. You're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter. We are the co-founders of 89N, and this is the It's a Monkey podcast where we talk about all things relating to the tech economy. Um, we're very excited to say that people are actually listening to this podcast according to our metrics, at least. we even James, we even had a listener in Austria according to our analytics. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Um, I assume they understand English, but um, if you, if you are a listener from Austria, um, not Australia, because maybe they were looking for Austrian podcasts and mistyped, <laughs> perhaps. And of course, you can email us at podcastitsamonkey.com. You can leave an audio message for us at four one five six two five three eight eight nine, or you can tweet us at it's a monkey. No, 
Not it's a monkey podcast. Monkey podcast. Uh, tweet us at monkey podcast, and you can find us on Facebook at monkey podcast. Coming up is Professor Jay Ritter. We're going to be talking to him about Facebook IPOs and um, the evolution of the listed tech company. We'll also ask him, are we in a tech bubble? Which is uh, seems to be a bit of a, a perennial almost question. So stick with us after the break and we will be back. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You are back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast where we talk about everything relating to the tech economy. You are with us on episode number three. Now, I'd just like to talk a little bit about, let's get more into the economy side of the tech economy this animal called ipo initial public offering or a stock listing has been around in the world for a long time the dutch east india company apparently was the first company to uh, be list itself offer shares to the public and in america the first listing in the late 1700s was bank of north america i believe now ipos have become a tool for companies, particularly tech companies, to have a liquidity event for their investors to cash out, to provide a valuation on the company. Of course, this year has been the big IPO of Facebook. In the past, we have had companies such as Google, Groupon, even earlier than that, Yahoo. So I thought I'd invite one of the world experts who is a world authority on IPOs to come and unpack this animal because things have been changing over the last little while in the IPO arena. So I'd like to welcome to the It's a Monkey podcast, Professor Jay Ritter, who is a professor of finance at the University of Florida. Professor, thank you very much, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be talking. Now, some of your own research has highlighted that in the years 1980 to the year 2000, there were on average 311 IPOs per year. But since 2000, there have only been 102 IPOs on average per year. That is quite a significant difference. What exactly is going on over there? Uh, that is indeed the pattern for the United States, uh, although Australia has not had the big drop-off in the last decade like the United States has had. But uh, when you look at the U.S. numbers, uh, there has been an even more dramatic fall in the number of small companies going public, uh, <clears throat> where I, I'm defining uh, small companies uh, as very small companies, uh, less than $50 million in annual sales in the year before going public. But historically, that's been the dividing line for about half of the IPOs in the United States. Half were bigger than that, half were smaller than that. Now, this drop in the IPO activity, are they replacing this traditional liquidity event, the IPO, with something else or are, are companies just seeking to to stay independent and are there less liquidity events what what is actually filling that vacuum 
Uh, venture capitalists have been exiting their portfolio companies, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, increasingly by selling out in a trade sale, uh, typically selling the company to a bigger company in the same industry, uh, whether it's Microsoft or Google or Apple or Cisco Systems or Nokia, uh, rather than having the company remain independent and go public. So there's been a pretty dramatic change in that regard where exiting uh, via an IPO and having the company remain as an independent company has been increasingly uncommon and instead selling out to a bigger company uh, has been increasingly common. Now, what are the advantages of exiting to a larger company versus the IPO? Um, obviously, with an IPO, the advantages are it's, it's um, slaps a valuation um, on the company, the shares can be publicly traded, and in, it, it creates a, a mechanism whereby the company can access uh, additional uh, capital. It, it provides profile for the company. I think if I would be correct in saying there still is some element of status and prestige in listing your company. And on the flip side, selling to a bigger company, um, I would imagine has the advantages that um, you don't have to go through all the compliance, etc. But talk us through a little bit about why the appeal has become so great that people are rather going the exit to a larger company uh, route. Well, there are two points of view on this. One view is that the IPO market is broken and companies are selling out rather than going public because, as you indicated, the burdens of being a public company with compliance costs uh, is just too great. Uh, the other viewpoint, uh, which is my viewpoint, is that the reason uh, lots of small companies, especially small technology companies, are not going public is it's not a public versus private issue, it's a big company versus small company issue. Right. And as technological change has been getting faster and faster, growing organically, uh, building your own business and staying independent is increasingly not the profit maximizing business strategy. Uh, instead, if, if you've got a really great new technology uh, the time to strike is now, and uh, getting big fast has become more important than it used to be. And a way of getting big fast is to sell out to a bigger company that can uh, immediately incorporate your technology into their products, uh, get it out to the marketplace faster, and realize greater value in that manner. And that's why many times the bigger company is willing to pay a premium uh, because the technology is worth more as part of a larger organization than if the company had stayed as an independent company, whether it was private or public. Some of the valuations are here um, in, in the Valley and, and even um, sometimes to a lesser degree in Australia when small companies are acquired by someone who really wants that company are quite staggering. I, I, absolutely. Now, uh, not every uh, startup company is going to be a success. Uh, that's always been true. But for a company that comes up with a great new technology, uh, think of Android. 
uh, which uh, I believe was an eight-person operation when they decided to sell out to Google. Uh, and uh, Google views it as the best acquisition they've ever made. And from Android's point of view, uh, selling out and getting their technology uh, quickly incorporated into other products uh, was probably a much better business strategy than trying to build up uh, their operating system and remain as an independent company. And I think that's where um, the issue of work, um, growing yourself in an ecosystem um, such as the Valley or San Francisco or New York really makes a lot of sense because by the time you're ready to be acquired or um, you're interested in, in a liquidity event, being in an ecosystem where you're meeting parties that are potential acquirers both formally and formally, I believe makes a significant difference. I, I agree with that. I, you know, there's a reason that Silicon Valley remains uh, the world center of the technology industry in spite of the high cost of living there, high taxes. Uh, as you indicated, it's a place where you can meet the right people and uh, possibly, you know, it's, it's going to result in the difference between having an idea that didn't quite make it versus uh, having the extra insight that tips the balance and, and makes it a really big success. It really is a cliche, but when I'm in San Francisco and I, and I head there once or twice a year, um, people that I meet in a, in a pizza line or an ice cream line um, undoubtedly are one degree away from, from significant people in significant companies. And, and the difference is quite stark to other cities at the world. So if, if you're listening to this podcast and you do have the opportunity to start a, a, a company in San Francisco or the Valley, for that reason alone, it, it, it really does make sense. Now, um, Professor Ritter, I'd, I'd just like to get onto this Facebook listing story. Just one question to kick it off. Did Facebook actually list too late? Uh, probably not. Uh, you know, as it has turned out, uh, they pretty much hit the peak of the market for social networking companies. Um, the, certainly public market investors who bought at the offer price, which includes me, uh, uh, lost as the stock price has fallen by almost 50% uh, in the three months since it's been public. Uh, but uh, Facebook benefited from uh, very optimistic valuations by lots and lots of investors. Uh, other social media companies were also getting very high valuations earlier this year. And uh, Facebook continues to be uh, concentrating on developing their products, implementing uh, their strategy rather than worrying about what happens to the stock price on a day-to-day -day basis. I believe when they were private and trading in some of the private um, secondary markets, like second market, the valuation peaked at $150 billion, and they are now down to $40 billion. Now, of course, Facebook was in a sense forced to list, weren't they? Uh, 
Yes, uh, being forced to list in, in terms of as the number of employees and other shareholders grew, uh, they uh, were forced to start publicly reporting financial results. That doesn't mean that they had to list, but right. venture capitalists and others did want to cash out. And a lot of the employees that had a lot of paper wealth uh, also wanted to cash out. Uh, some of them were starting to do it on these private markets like Shares Post and Second Market. Uh, I, I'm not sure if there were any transactions at a valuation at, at as high as a $150 billion, right. uh, but certainly well over $100 billion. Uh, and uh, it, in, in the computations as well, uh, there is an issue as to how many shares you want to count in that uh, there are many stock options and restricted uh, shares that were not counted as uh, uh, actual shares by some people and other people are, are using the fully diluted number of shares. Uh, and if you use that fully diluted number, uh, th then the valuation today is at about $50 billion. Still uh, a very healthy amount and if, if Facebook's valuation had gone from $10 billion three years ago to $50 billion today in a more or less a straight line, everybody would be talking about what a great success it's been. Only because it had gotten to such a lofty valuation uh, in between going from 10 to 50 uh, have uh, people been viewing it as a bit of a disappointment? And certainly for those who bought at the peak, it, it has been a disappointment. And I guess that's my question, if it's sensible for companies, for tech companies, to actually list when their revenue numbers are compounding, whereas Facebook, in a way, they, they almost a mature company with their revenue numbers sliding back and moving sideways. And, and really, we're all waiting to see if they can hit an inflection point to take it to a new level. But would they have been better off, perhaps, when those revenue numbers were compounding to list and get the psychological benefits of being able to announce new revenue numbers um, that have increased um, quarter after quarter? Uh, possibly uh, if they had gone public a few quarters earlier, uh, things would look uh, a little more rosy. Uh, however, uh, getting the market timing exactly right is difficult. And w what has investors concerned about Facebook, uh, which is why the valuation is a mere $50 billion, uh, still an incredibly high number for a company uh, that was founded uh, only about eight years ago, uh, it is that a lot of their growth has now been from people accessing Facebook on mobile devices and on tiny screens, there's not a lot of opportunity for advertising. And uh, the advertising revenue per user that accesses Facebook on a mobile device has been very small relative to the advertising revenue uh, on, uh, from users that, that access uh, on a full screen monitor. And, and that, that's caused the revenue growth rate to fall down. My name is Kevin Garber. We're talking with Professor Jay Ritter, who is the Professor of Finance at the University of Florida. We are talking about IPOs and stock prices, and particularly as they relate to the tech industry. Professor, I've got a chart in front of me from the dot-com days, from 1998 to 1999, of, of companies that have listed, sorted by the first day pop 
return. And uh, number one is a company called VA Linux, who 700% on their first day. How could we have not seen that that was a bubble then? Uh, well, back in 99 and 2000, there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that there was an internet bubble going on, that the valuations of a lot of tech stocks and internet stocks uh, were just uh, unjustifiable. Uh, even with very optimistic assumptions, uh, it was going to end in disaster. The only question was when. Uh, with uh, the recent social media companies, uh, Zynga, Facebook, uh, Groupon, etc., et uh, a year or two ago, a lot of people were asking, is this a bubble? And at the time, I, I said, uh, I'm not certain. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, the valuations uh, could almost be justified. Uh, it required some optimistic assumptions. But the success that Google had in monetizing targeted search advertising uh, and growing its profits to, in 2011, $10 billion after tax uh, did result in a plausible scenario for a company like Facebook, which, after all, makes its money from targeted search advertising, just like Google. Uh, so it could justify such a lofty valuation. It, it did not require absolutely ridiculous assumptions, as was the case 12 years ago. I saw yesterday there was some ruling um, in the U.S. that is going to make crowdsourcing of funding a lot easier. Is this heralding a new phase in the IPO process? It seems like the IPO process is, is, is not fulfilling its promises well as it can. Is crowdsourcing funding perhaps the next evolution in this process? I think there's going to be a little bit of crowdfunding uh, where a large number of investors each contribute a little bit of money, but I don't think that's going to be very successful. And investors in crowd into something after other investors have had some big winners. Right. Uh, and I don't think that crowdfunding is going to be making many investors rich. Uh, one thing that is lacking in crowdfunding uh, that is present with venture capital is venture capitalists are not only evaluating companies, uh, but they're also in many cases offering useful advice that in fact makes the company more valuable. Uh, collecting money from a bunch of uh, dispersed investors uh, is not providing advice as well. And I don't think there are going to be a lot of high-quality companies that uh, generate a lot of funds from crowdfunding and then go on to become big successes. Of course, there's Kickstarter, which has had some, some um, level of success, but that tends to be more as a hobbyist um, curiosity type of projects than serious businesses. Correct. Professor Ritter, we've really appreciated talking with you. It, it really um, is interesting times in the tech world, in the, in the listed stock world. Um, last word from you, Facebook at the moment, a buy or a sell? 
I, I am relatively neutral on it right now. Uh, I sold my position uh, before I, I suffered too big a loss. Uh, I have not gotten back in. Uh, if Facebook were to drop a little bit more, I think I'd become a buyer. But on the other hand, I haven't shorted it either. Uh, I, I think at the current valuations, uh, it, it's still a bit pricey, but uh, justifiably so. Any other tech stocks, um, well-known brands or, or lesser-known brands that we should keep an eye on that you think are interesting to, to watch? Uh, if I uh, could predict that with a great deal of accuracy, <laughs> I'd be able to quit my day job. Well, I saw Yelp on Wednesday jumped 20%, um, and it was the end of an unlock period, and I believe it had to do with um, short selling. That uh, that uh, the short sellers got caught by surprise, and the stock increased, which exacerbated things. Quite an interesting phenomenon. If if people are interested in in that, to look up what happened in Yelp on Tuesday on their 25% bounce, 20% bounce up. Right, right. Uh, with Yelp, so many short sellers had bet that it would fall when the lockup shares, uh, locked up shares, were available for trading. Uh, that the price fell, the price fall occurred before the end of the lockup, and then when there wasn't massive selling yesterday, uh, a lot of the short sellers decided, uh, "Oops, uh, we better cover our position." Uh, it, it's an example of how. Once people begin to uncover a pattern, it tends to self-destruct. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And we'd love to have you on again, and maybe we'll talk about some of the other topics, algorithmic trading or, or, or things like that. So I really do appreciate your time, and thanks for joining us on the It's a Monkey podcast, episode number three. My pleasure. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free Budgie account. Welcome back to the It's a Monkey podcast with Kevin Garber and James Peter. James? Very, very interesting. Uh, very interesting talk there. I, I, actually, one of the things that stood out to me was I didn't even know Android wasn't a Google homegrown product, so that was a bit of a surprise. I knew Android was um, an acquisition. What I didn't know is he said um, Google claimed that it's their most successful acquisition. Mm. I thought I thought YouTube had that mantle, that special mm. um, place in their acquisition trail. Could be, could be. Although if you think at the if you think of the the market that Android's taken over now and the places put Google in in terms of mobile, I mean it's a very strong position. If they weren't there, they would be in a very different uh, very different uh, place as a company. Um, yeah, it's it was it's very interesting, sort of insightful talk. The way he was looking at all of the, you know, different aspects of uh, of trading and uh, and um, yeah, it's just it's just so fascinating, you know, all these different paths these these companies can take. Um, and I guess it just comes down to nobody nobody knows what's ever ever's going to happen. You can never predict this stuff. So yeah, he um, the, the professor didn't didn't want to commit himself to a view on the Facebook share price. <laughs> uh, I was hoping I'd get some good stock <laughs> tips. But well, the tricky th the tricky thing is if you commit yourself and um, it goes the other way, it's 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 permanent record there. So um, I I, th I can understand his hesitation definitely.
Um, I like academics, James. I really like academics. Yeah. They smart, smart people. Yeah. Answer your questions. <laughs> Answer, yeah, clear and explain things really well. I, I definitely would like to have him back on the It's a Monkey podcast. If you have any ideas for guests on the It's a Monkey podcast, tweet us at Monkey Podcast or email us. James, Facebook shares. Um, it's it's obviously for various reasons. Just the sheer size of it is is a very interesting stock to look at. It was the third biggest IPO in in the history of IPOs. Oh, really? oh wow! Visa was the first. Hmm. Um, Visa was a. Um, I think I. What do I have here? Facebook was sixteen billion worth of IPO. Um, Visa was the number one IPO in 2008. The difference is Visa popped on the first day up 28%, whereas I think Facebook was just uh, it was just a slight increase. Slight, uh, slight drop, I think. Was it a slight to, drop? Down to 30. They kept it above 30. Yeah. So obviously the sheer size of it, it's also one of the biggest shares that has this dual class structure that I think Google were one of the first to... Um, to put in place where there's the difference, the class A, the class Bs, and essentially that's why Zuckerberg has so much control. Mm. Um, it is now common for all these tech stocks to do that. Split their shares that way. Um, um, Zynga and LinkedIn as well. But what was really interesting was this graph that our listeners obviously can't see, but that that's the revenue um, growth rate from year to year. Now, in 2010, the revenue was... Um, had increased 146%. It was 1.88 billion in 2010. Now, you can see the revenue growth rate has been dropping year on year. 2011, um, 68% from 146%. 2012, projected only 34%. So this is what the market does not like. Mm. I can understand it. that That the revenue is has an inverse exponential downwards yeah i mean that 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 could be temporary i mean you know as he was saying it's uh they haven't they haven't really got mobile under control yet they haven't figured out a way to monetize it and and you know eyeballs just keep shifting towards mobile so um, that is you know i think that's a strong reason for their for their lack of growth but um you know i don't see that being the case forever i can't see them not finding a solution to to monetize that um, one of the questions I have, though, is does it, I mean, obviously Facebook were, uh, I guess, to a degree artificially inflated before they, before they went public. Um, is that, is that a good thing for Facebook? Because then they get a whole bunch more money than they would have otherwise. I mean, obviously it's bad for the invest, the people who bought stock initially, but it's actually quite good for Facebook that they were so overvalued, isn't it? So. Well, I think in one sense, yes, but I think no stock likes to go backwards so even mm. e- even if they listed at a good price and they they did you know get as much money off the table as possible um i guess it's not making money for you know all the employees and everybody who has stock there in the company they've just lost half that potential value so i guess from that perspective it's uh, it's not a good thing so exactly in, in all the locked up shares which are yeah. and, and and no one wants to have a, a, a falling stock price so I, th- I, th- I think I think the aim is to have some type of balance where there is a little bit of a pop, but not too much. Because if there's too much, then the bankers 
are looked at and saying they left money on the table mm. um, for the company because obviously the company doesn't make money in the secondary exchange of shares. Yeah. Um, so yeah, look, really interesting. Obviously, we're going to we're going to track it. We were meant to speak to someone else about the comment, but um, um, he, he cancelled a few times. Uh, but um, we will keep on top of this this topic. Um, you don't own Facebook shares, do you? No. <laughs> I, I have a few. I got in at twenty nine. Okay. Uh, so not at the peak, not at the bottom. I, I've got the view that I, I don't know if this whole mobile thing is actually um, a, a little bit of a red herring. I think the other monetization points, whether it's around group buying, whether it's around events, whether it's around a uh, corporate dashboard that will allow people to um, log into. I know they have their promoted posts on their fan pages already. I'm I'm very bullish about the Facebook share price, probably more bullish than most people. Uh, I'm, I'm totally with you. I mean, if I was, uh, well, I don't know if I would invest if I was, I was making that decision, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I can't see, I can't see them not going up in the future. They're in such a strong position um, and they keep on making the right decisions. They've, they've survived so long and they've kept so much their audience. Um, you know, in some ways I see them as probably being the, the most likely to be the, um, you know, successful over the long term in, in all the social media companies. Like even even uh, compared to, you know, Twitter and, and I guess Google Plus, I still f- see Facebook as being uh, so mature. They've been doing it for so long and they've, you know, they've gone over every one of these hurdles in terms of privacy and going public and they've just kept on going and they've just kept on doing what they do well without really getting distracted um, and without, you know, really cannibalizing their user base or, or really you know, annoying people over the long term. They've they've managed to survive so many of these these hurdles. I just, um, yeah, I definitely see them as a as a long term company. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what they're going to evolve into. It's probably they're probably not going to look anything like they do now in in even three years from now. But uh, yeah, I definitely see them as being a, a success over the long term. I agree with you, and I'm happy to go on the record as saying I I I, I think a, a large part of their new revenue is going to come from some real interesting, quirky, um, you, know, you know, monetization feature as opposed to just um, display ads. Yeah. I, I think they're smart people and um, they will work it out. Yeah. Buy, buy friends on <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> then they're new, they're new, new or maybe strategy. maybe they'll charge each time you defriend someone. <laughs> they'll uh, yeah. they'll they'll you know each time you decrease the social graph. But every uh, every, uh, every like costs you one cent, and every dislike costs you ten cents. Yeah, look, I mean, with nearly one billion users, and I think you made an interesting point that they have survived, and that's actually a very difficult thing mm. to do. You know, when I think of the, the survivors, I definitely think of Facebook and Google, yeah. and they pushing out the whole time. And, um, you know, you just have to look at Friendster and MySpace, and, um, you, you know, the, the list is endless of the, you, you know, the graveyard of, of tech companies. And, and we live and work in this space and we can see how it moves so fast. There's a lot of complicated dynamics. There's a lot of complicated politics as sure well. Is. Um, that to survive so successfully, something something is going right. And um, yeah, so we'll, we'll keep following that story and, and getting a few different um, <coughs> angles along the way. So you're listening to Kevin and James. And coming up next over the break, uh, we will be taking a listener's questions. 
um, question that he called in and asked us a couple of questions. If you have a question for us, you can call in um, and leave a question. I will give you the number in a moment. It is 415-625-3889. You can uh, make a comment. Um, you can tell us a little bit about what you'd like to hear on the show. Um, and we'd very much like to know who you are. So we'll be back in a moment answering your questions. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. Hi, guys. Uh, just a question from me. It's Ray here. Um, great show, by the way. Um, my question relates to a message that Dalton Caldwell wrote to Mark Zuckerberg relating to the way our friends at Facebook, the, uh, the, the team at Facebook, approached his company and tried to acquire him with the strong arm tactics. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to see your views on that. My other question is uh, relates to how payments are best taken by an online company and how you suggest a small startup like mine, uh, keymate.com.au or keymate.com with an eight um, can take payments uh, and small payments at that once a year. Uh, just want to get your views on how best to implement that. Uh, thanks for a great show. Good to hear from you. Ray, thanks for calling in and leaving us a question. Much appreciated. James, let's quickly first cover the, the, the Dalton Caldwell um, acquihire mm -hmm. issue. If people are interested in this, the story, just Google Mark Zuckerberg and Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N-C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L. -L -E um, what do you think about that? Um, I can see both sides of the story, uh, which isn't very fun. But I mean, I, if if anything, um, I, I mean, okay. And so, in terms of what happened, was you know, Dalton uh, Caldwell was he was building some sort of iOS app that worked with the Open Graph and Facebook's platform, and uh, Facebook invited him in for a meeting uh, to talk about um, an ac acquisition on so of some sorts. Um, and he felt that during the meeting he was kind of blindsided by. Uh, you know, Facebook telling him halfway along that they were bringing out a competitive product and, you know, if, if he didn't, it was either join them or die, basically. Um, uh, I, I mean, if I, if I side on either side, I'd, I'd probably go with Facebook, to be honest. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like they did anything particularly wrong to me. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of just the way business works. It's you business and it's, and it's also, it's also power relations. I mean, Facebook's yeah. Facebook, you know, that's the way the world works. You have to accept these kind of, you know, extent, existential, existential risks as a business. You know, it's it's kind of beyond your control. And any time you're, anytime you're dealing with an entity bigger bigger than yourself, you know, you have to know that it can go both ways. You know, I've you know I've been burnt by that myself. You know, it's just uh, you kind of just have to go with it and and just you know wait until the. Uh, until you find out what what they're expecting the situation, until all the details get revealed, and then just you know deal with it the best that you can. Um, you know I, I don't think they did 
did anything particularly wrong. There was nothing that came out of that that sort of that sort of that sort of shocked me. Uh, I mean, I guess the only thing they could have done a little bit better was maybe be a little bit more upfront or at least prepare him on some some respects. But I mean, that, that's pretty hard. Like you can't tell somebody before they come to a meeting that you've got a competitive product if you haven't really announced it yet. So. And it is, it is the game of business. And I think I sensed in Ray's tone of voice of uh, a little bit annoyance of, of Facebook being a bully or something like that. And well, you know, the, 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 there are power relations in the world and, and some people and some entities have more or less power. And, uh, you know, Facebook, certainly there's definitely an, asy- an asymmetry of power. I mean, yeah. Look, I guess what Dalton was doing was, you know, he was kind of trying to take back some of that power. I mean, it that kind of is the the recourse, I guess, for people who do, you know, get the short end of the stick in these kind of uh, situations. You, you know, you can kind of bring your situation public, and and you know, because you are the small fish, you know, you know, favor tends to decide with you. So, but you know, public uh, public opinion tends to decide on the the favor of the the disadvantage. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was kind of his. His reaction to it, which you know, is that any worse than what Facebook did? You know, who knows? Dalton Caldwell is is an interesting um, character in the the tech the tech world at the moment. He, of course, got App.net together, which we spoke about a few weeks ago. I haven't had a chance to play with the App.net, but I see that um, that there does seem to be a little bit momentum on there. Have you managed to have a look at it at all? I played with the early alpha version. I haven't uh, had a look over the past week, but um, yeah, it seems to be. Slowly plodding, plodding along. Competition is always good. So Definitely. it keeps everyone on their toes and uh, good on him for having all the initiative. With respect to Ray's second question, payment gateways. Boy, we, uh, uh, um, <laughs> I'm confidently saying that we can certainly talk about that topic comfortably. There's, there's no depth to, to answering <laughs> that question. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess the easy answer is that... that well, there is no good solution, but the longer answer is obviously there are lots of ways you can do it. Um, there's uh, uh, in the US. Um, I mean, obviously it depends on the type of business. I mean, you know, I think he was asking, you know, about a, a smaller business doing small once-off payments. Um, in the US, there's lots of really good uh, payment uh, gateway providers um, like uh, Stripe and Recurly. Um, but uh, they only provide for the U.S. merchants, but they work really well. They, you know, they're very simple to integrate. They've got a straightforward API. Uh, but neither of them are accessible to Australia as it stands. Um, I mean, if I was a small business, I would, uh, and I, and I wanted to spend the minimum amount possible in order to get up and accepting payments, uh, I would use PayPal. Um, you know, it's still, despite its its problems and, you know, the potential for your money to get locked out and, and the fact that they do block quite a lot of payments uh, to protect themselves and you, and you from fraud, um, it still is definitely, you know, the easiest way to get started. It doesn't cost you anything or very much depending on how you're set up and you don't even need a merchant account. So it's a very, very easy entry point. Particularly for non-US Particularly for non-US, yeah. For non-US. I think um, Ray did tweet to us and I could see that he was in Australia. The one question that I do have for Ray, though, he mentioned about annual payments. Now, I don't know if annual payments, you know, we have monthly payments on CheckDog and Manage Flitter, but I don't know if annual payments on a product would actually work Mm, in yeah. terms of people forgetting that they've signed up for a service, um, all sorts of chargebacks would come through. What are your thoughts? 
it it is it is a challenge um you know i i often end up in that situation in fact happened to me recently um had a subscription with uh groove shark you know one of the just like an online streaming thing it was like it was like like 30 dollars per year um and you know i signed up a year ago i was happy with it then i was using it every day but uh you know a year later and i've kind of transitioned to another product i don't really use it and yeah as soon as i got the charge i was like uh, i got a little bit annoyed because you know even though i didn't necessarily have any right to because i had you know signed up to that subscription um but you know it did it did come as a surprise that you know one year later without any notice i just got a i got a charge so um i mean they, they were actually really good i just sent them the email and asked for a refund and cancellation they just did it straight away with no questions asked so they were good um and i definitely think you need to take that approach if you are going to do yearly subscriptions uh you know no uh, you know refund no questions asked if people do want it but um but it is a bit of a minefield i know i know you've often said that uh monthly subscriptions are much better because people remember them they've got no surprises um and yeah i agree with that no one likes surprises and we always take the approach so you know the spirit of business is not to not 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 to get um you know business by not providing value um, you know, it's got to be a result. People need to be paying you because you're providing value, not because they've forgotten about something and it's just sitting there. Absolutely. Um, in terms of in terms of a payment gateways, I mean, just just um, in terms of the longer answer, um, there is actually quite a lot happening in the space. There are quite a lot of entities coming on board for Australia and for international customers. Um, I mean, just around here, there's the the Pin.net guys, which are trying to be you know, kind of a stripe for Australia. Um, and and there and there are other solutions like um, Braintree um, just recently announced that they've opened up across all of Europe. Um, and actually they were talking to us today and they said they've got a, a solution for Australia as well. Um, so there there are these these little packages sort of slowly coming in there. There's nothing sort of owning the market or anything that's really great, but um, I'm sure... 12 months from now hopefully we'll have we'll, we won't have to have this discussion again we'll just have an answer it's like use these people so. I hope so it's, it's well overdue and I think you know I'm not a massive fan of government getting you know incredibly involved in business but I do actually see this as one area where the Australian government can perhaps stimulate things because after all what we are just trying to do is actually accept payments and a lot of the time it's actually export payments which are which are doubly as valuable so really just stimulating this industry to become super competitive in Australia just as much as it is in the US will really benefit everyone and really trickle down to the economy maybe we should be writing to our local member <laughs> tweeting our local member yeah, we should be yeah <laughs> um that's about it for today just to update you on the next um, couple of weeks i am actually being going to the TechCrunch disrupt conference in san francisco that is um, ground zero for silicon valley or the um you know, the venture capital guys are there and uh, everyone from Marissa Mayer to um, the Twitter guys, Jack from Twitter, they're all going to be there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get some interviews at the TechCrunch Disrupt, which means instead of um, distributing this podcast next Friday, it may be a couple of days late, but hopefully with some interesting features. Uh, but please, if you have enjoyed this podcast, it is early days and Tell your friends about it. We are trying to make this really interesting for you. We do enjoy it, and we'd like to keep um, building on it as much as we can. In the meantime, email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. 
Thanks very much from James and Kevin. Next time, be speaking to you from San Francisco. Thank you.